We introduced training, reviewed all our processes and procedures. We started looking at the partnerships that we had and could we improve that training with specialised training. We looked at the the accessibility of, of our business, so how people interact with us and we started to introduce over the years different you know new ways um, to make ourselves more accessible and um, foreign language translation services to our you know uh, recite me toolbar which can translate and do a lot of different things for people. You are listening to the Consumers and Standards series from the BSI Education Podcast in association with CPIN, the Consumer and Public Interest Network. Today's episode is on standards and consumer vulnerability. We started with initial things with processes and procedures, and then over the years, we've just continually improved and improving, adding new things. So it's really good, you know, and it's and it, we've been shown in the standard to say that we're actually moving away from that engineering focus and we're becoming more customer focused. And that's they've seen that improving year on year, which is amazing. The voice you heard at the top of the episode there was Julie Walker from Scottish and Southern Electricity Networks talking about the positive impact on her organisation and their customers of adopting the standard BS18477 for inclusive service provision. We'll hear more from Julie later and also from CPIN Chair Julie Hunter, Martin Kopak from the organisation Fair by Design and Caroline Lewis from the consultancy firm Access Design Solutions. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs, and you are listening to the third episode of the BSI Education Podcast Consumers and Standards Series, which is about standards and consumer vulnerability. And we are delighted to be bringing it to you in association with our friends at CPIN, the independent consumer and public interest network, which in 2021 is celebrating its 70th anniversary. The Consumer and Public Interest Network, or CPIN, empowers and protects consumers, making everyone's lives safer, fairer and better through effective consumer representation in British standards. Established in 1951, CPIN's trained volunteers participate in the development of standards to highlight key consumer issues, making sure that real-life problems are addressed and the risk of consumer harm is minimised. CPIN believes that all consumers have a right to safe and accessible goods and services, clear information, fair treatment, effective systems of redress, and a healthy environment. CPIN representatives use the United Nations guidelines for consumer protection as the foundation of their work. They sit on hundreds of standards development committees, speaking up for consumers. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash consumers. The consumer voice in standards is incredibly important. This is because standards are everywhere, making consumers' lives safer, fairer and easier. Whether you're using a mobile phone or shopping online, standards behind the scenes are setting good practice for organisations that make goods and provide services. Now, BSI publishes around 2,500 standards every year, and it'd be pretty much impossible for CPIN to get involved in every single one. So instead, resources are focused in areas where CPIN can have the greatest positive impact for consumers, based on five priorities. Sustainability, consumer vulnerability, consumer safety, 
digital and services. Now, the aim of the BSI Education podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. So this series looks at some of the stories and issues for each of these five priorities. So for this episode, the CPIN priority is consumer vulnerability. Vulnerability has risen up the consumer protection agenda in recent years. At an international level, the United Nations considers the understanding of consumer vulnerability to be central to delivering effective and inclusive legislation, enforcement and redress. The UN Guidelines for Consumer Protection, revised in 2015, cite the protection of vulnerable and disadvantaged consumers as a key principle to be considered by governments, policymakers and businesses. CPIN believes that goods and services should be fair and inclusive and that organizations provide the right support for those in vulnerable situations. Here's me with a quick reminder that for more information on BSI education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. This link and others on the themes raised in this episode can be found in the episode notes. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and share us on social media using the hashtag BSIEdPod. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or ideas for future episodes, then do please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really welcome your feedback. This episode looks at how CPIN and standards play a vital role in the area of consumer vulnerability, with four guests. Caroline Lewis is a director of consultancy firm Access Design Solutions and also a CPIN representative. Martin Kopak is a director at Fair by Design, an organisation dedicated to ending the poverty premium. Julie Walker is Social Obligations and Vulnerability Services Delivery Manager at Scottish and Southern Electricity Networks. But we start with Julie Hunter, independent consultant, writer and researcher specialising in consumer issues and also CPIN chair. I started by asking Julie, why has consumer vulnerability risen up the consumer protection agenda in recent years? I think vulnerability has always existed, of course. But I think a lot of it's to do with um, consumer demand. And um, that has kind of led to um, changes in consumer protection. So UK consumers started off wanting good value from service providers. Then they wanted better customer service. So I think then companies have had to up their game to compete with that in a more demanding marketplace. But then consumers have started thinking, how can organizations go above and beyond, you know, what they're doing already? Um, how can they go above that good service? And in the digital age, we're really, um, we're more aware of what companies are doing. We've got the internet, we've got social media. We hear about case studies of consumer harm. We hear about reports and surveys of who's doing well and who's not performing so well. And I think consumer groups have started thinking maybe 10, 15 years ago, much more about ethical issues and the consumer harm that could come about as a result. So things like social responsibility, equality, fairness, and um, how organizations were treating consumers in vulnerable circumstances because consumer groups could see the huge potential there was, was for consumer harm. And I think also it's something that all consumers can relate to because they've either been in a vulnerable situation themselves or they know a family member or a friend and it's quickly become very important to consumers and good businesses are responding to that. And that's been reflected in 
standards and legislation and regulation as well. So about a decade ago, I think it was 2010, we published BS 18477 Inclusive Service. And that was a really groundbreaking standard because it was the first time that all these principles and concepts have been put down really in writing. Um, and then 2015, you had the United Nations Guidelines for Consumer Protection. And for the first time, they recognised that inclusivity was one of the 11 legitimate consumer needs. And that's around the protection of vulnerable and disadvantaged consumers. And the United Nations Guidelines, they're international guidance that's used by um, governments and businesses around the world. So that was a really important step forward, I think, in putting these things down on paper. And just one thing that I realised when I started working on the global standard, ISO 22458, was we have a really strong consumer protection framework in the UK when it comes to protecting consumers in vulnerable circumstances, Consumer Rights Act, Equality Act. We have lots of regulators who've published guidance on fair treatment of vulnerable consumers. But loads of countries around the world don't have consumer protection legislation or equality legislation at all. They don't have regulators. In some countries, they don't even recognize the term vulnerability. Um, they don't use it in legislation. It might not even be in consumers' vocabulary. So that's why I think the international standard has been really important because this isn't a globally recognized concept. Um, so it shows what a valuable tool the standard can be. Now, I'm glad you mentioned ISO 22458 because I want to come back to that specifically later on. But before we do that, I'm interested in the, the factors that may contribute to consumer vulnerability. What are, what are they? Yeah, that's a good question because there are so, so many of these risk factors. And what's really important is the concept of vulnerability has moved on a lot in the last 10 years. So if you're thinking 10, 15 years ago, people were really only thinking about stereotypical groups of people being vulnerable. So people over a certain age or people with a disability, for example. And that is still the way that vulnerability is thought of in lots of countries. But now, thankfully, the concept has moved on a lot and there's really wide range of factors at play. Um, and a lot of them are situational. So things like personal life events, for example, if you suffer a bereavement or a relationship breakdown, you lose your job, um, your income drops, um, you're in debt, uh, maybe you're, you're a victim of domestic abuse. These are all personal life events that can really, really impact vulnerability. Um, in the standard, we also look at health issues, so mental health, um, dementia, which we know is affecting, um, you know, so many consumers now, we're becoming much more aware of that. People living with severe illness, terminal illness. Um, we also look at skills and capabilities. So language skills, for example, if you're living in a country where you don't, you know, that language is not your first language, people's numeracy skills can affect how they interact with financial service providers. And also things like digital capability, you know, how good are you at navigating the internet, for example, that's a big factor too. And just the final one, which is really important, is external conditions. So that's things like that you don't really have control over, like the behavior of organizations, um, how well they manage customer service or complaints process, things like um, people from other countries actually made us more aware of things like nat nat natural disasters, like earthquakes, floods, you know, extreme weather events. Um, and all of us working on the standard over the last two years, obviously things like pandemics 
Um, that's a big external factor that could make people, very large numbers of people vulnerable. So it was really um, interesting to see how the, what the range of risk factors has really expanded um, over recent years. And we, we have a much greater understanding now of all the things that can contribute to vulnerability. Now, you mentioned a global pandemic. I was going to ask you about uh, <laughs> about COVID. I mean, how has COVID amplified the issues surrounding consumer vulnerability? Um, it's had it's had a really big impact. COVID and the resulting restrictions have affected everyone's lives, I think, in a number of different ways. So it's created new vulnerabilities, but it's also made existing vulnerabilities worse. So, for example, if you think about being in lockdown, um, working from home, um, that's kind of isolated people socially, maybe separated them from family and friends. That's taken its toll on people's mental health. If you already had mental health issues, it could have made the situation worse. Um, financially, some people have been better off during COVID. They've been earning the same but spending less. But many, many people have been struggling financially. So reduced working hours, um, loss of income, or maybe even losing their jobs altogether. So for people who are already struggling to make ends meet before the pandemic, obviously this has put them in a much more vulnerable situation. And I think another thing is COVID has forced people to move online for a lot of things. You're carrying out lots more activities online, like shopping, banking. And there's lots of people who had never shopped online before or aren't that tech savvy. And they're having to go online to do their shopping. Um, and that's a big risk factor of vulnerability. I mean, lack of knowledge and experience is a risk factor, whether it's technical skills online or, for example, even if you know if you know nothing about cars or washing machines and computers, and you have to place your trust in the mechanic or the engineer who diagnoses the problem, you're instantly in a vulnerable situation because they know more than you do. So, I think there's so many examples where COVID has um, made existing vulnerabilities worse, um, and yes, impacted a lot of people. Now, earlier you mentioned ISO two two four five eight. Now, could you tell us why this particular standard is important and how could it help to improve outcomes for vulnerable consumers? Well, as I mentioned before, lots of countries lack any legislation or regulation in this area to protect consumers in vulnerable situations. So it's really, really important that that guidance um, is there because it's global. It makes sure there's a consistency of approach across all different nations cultures because there's lots of cultural differences as well that we need to consider when making the standard but also across lots of service sectors so it's been really good to have we've had 16 countries involved all bringing their own experiences um and we can put together from those experiences what the good practice is um it makes us think of lots of different things so i think that The standard is going to help because it gives really detailed requirements and recommendations for organisations and a checklist of what they need to do to consider, um, what things they need to consider to identify and support consumers who may be vulnerable, how to treat them fairly and how to minimise that risk of harm. So I'll just give a few examples of things that are in the standard that I think are going to help. We focus quite a lot on inclusive design listening to lived experiences, understanding consumers and the vulnerabilities that may exist, making sure that services are usable and accessible to the greatest number of people possible, how to spot the risk factors for um, for vulnerability, 
whether it's through staff observation, encouraging disclosure to understand the difficulties. And something really important is for firms to focus on what is it that consumers are vulnerable to? What is the impact on the individual and the difficulties they're experiencing rather than the cause of the vulnerability? We also cover things like how to record personal information um, while protecting privacy and how to give the best response. We give suggestions of what service providers can do to help support individuals and minimise that risk of harm. So I think if if businesses use this standard, it's going to really help improve the quality of their interactions with their customers. It's going to hopefully help them to reduce the likelihood of problems and complaints because they're going to get things right first time. Um, and it's going to help, you know, enhance their reputation because they're doing the right thing. So it can also help them enhance their like legal obligations to meet, you know, in terms of fairness and equality. It can help them make sure that they're following that good practice in the way that they treat consumers in vulnerable situations. So hopefully it's going to have a, a really positive impact on consumers in a wide range of vulnerable circumstances globally. And at what point are we uh, are we at in the development of this particular standard? Okay, so the draft at the moment is out for public comment until the 23rd of June. And we are hoping that we'll be publishing in um, March 2022. And you can find a link to that draft standard for public consultation in the episode notes. Did you know? Living with dementia... The word dementia refers to a group of symptoms affecting memory, thinking, reasoning, language and judgment that deteriorate over time. Dementia affects around 850,000 people in the UK. By 2025, this number will have reached 1 million. As the number of people with dementia increases, it's important that their local communities understand and support their needs. The standard PAS 1365 helps to ensure that communities are more aware of the needs of those with dementia and how to help them, as well as enabling them to live better lives in their community. In my conversation with Julie Hunter, she mentioned the standard BS 18477 on inclusive service provision. I picked this up with the other Julie in this episode, Julie Walker of Scottish and Southern Electricity Networks. As we heard at the top of the episode, her company's been using this standard. Like Julie Hunter, Julie Walker is also involved in the development of the new standard for consumer vulnerability, ISO 22458. I started by asking Julie about why the issue of consumer vulnerability is so important for her organisation. Um, so consumer vulnerability is important for our organization because we're, we're providing a vital supply to customers. So they're relying on energy. And it's amazing how an impact of not having any power can affect people's well-being. So it's really important to us that we understand the different customers that are across different demographics of our organization and the impacts that a power cut can have on these kind of people so that we can ensure that the services that we're offering are fit for purpose, that, that if they have a power cut, we can react quickly, we can provide the support they need. And, and proactively, we do a lot of work engaging with our customers, our communities. We have a lot of partnerships in place just so that we can deepen that understanding of the different people that different vulnerable groups that we have um, from 
communication difficulties, disabilities, and even people in fuel poverty, so that we can ensure that we provide a service that, you know, that can benefit them. Now, on the podcast, uh, Julie, we love to talk about journeys, standards journeys, and we tend to talk about them in terms of individuals. But I'm interested in the consumer vulnerability journey for you and your organisation. Well, it's actually, the, the British standards um BS 184 had a really positive impact for us. Um, so we started that journey for about seven years ago and we were generally really kind of an engineering focused business and we obviously vulnerability was a kind of a buzzword back then and it was becoming more of a focus. So we we looked at the standard and actually as, as part of that, you know, taking on that standard we did a lot of gap analysis just to make sure that we were you know we were prepared for going through that the process and achieving that so for us it was it was really important um that we changed and improved a lot of things so that we could you know adhere to that standard and you're now you're now certified to bs 18477 yep yep we've been certified for six consecutive years now Yep, so it's really good, and hopefully that will continue for the for the future years coming. Now, what would you say are sort of the main changes that have taken place within the organisation because of you implementing BS one eight four seven seven? Well, I mean that's all part of the the journey. I mean we've changed the, the initial changes when we when we did that gap analysis, and and using the the matrix as standard was really good to help us do that. We introduced training. Um, we did had reviewed all our processes and procedures. Um, we started looking at the partnerships that we had and could we improve that training with specialized training. We looked at the the accessibility of of our business, so how people interact with us, and we started to introduce over the years different you know, new ways um, to make ourselves more accessible and um, foreign language translation services to our, you know, uh, Recite Me toolbar, which can translate and do a lot of different things for people, um, which is really good. So uh, we've, we've, we started with initial things with processes and procedures. And then over the years, we've just continually improved and l- improving adding new things so it's really good you know and it's and we've been shown in the standard to say that we're actually moving away from that engineering focus and we're becoming more customer focused and that's they've seen that improving year on year which is amazing well that's a really interesting interesting journey and i wonder how how has the experience with that particular standard bs18477 how has that influenced the way your organization views and uses other standards to be honest, we did. I think that was fairly new for us when we looked at the BS one eight four seven seven, and since then we have looked at a couple of other standards such as the customer service and the the the, the resilience standard, um, and and we still are kind of looking at those. So it has made us it has opened our eyes to see that there are other standards that we we could achieve, and um, we've just not started on those new journeys yet. And how about your personal involvement? I'm interested about your your personal involvement with BSI and CPIN and, and standards generally. I mean, how important is it for you and your organisation that you're involved in standards making? Oh, it, it's 
for me personally, it's helped me become more confident. It was really a real eye-opener listening to all the other people that are part of that working group from across the globe, um, helping you to understand that I think we get stuck in what happens in the UK and our own legislation and our own challenges. And it really opens your eyes hearing what other countries' challenges are, different legislation. And obviously, through working along the standard, you know, it has to be adapted to, to so that it's, you know, everyone can use it. So it really has kind of given me more knowledge of a vulnerability in lots of different areas, so which is really good. Um, and the company, they, they're just really proud that we're a part of that, that, that we're seen as being an expert on that group. And actually, we can take that out and engage with others across the industry and, and lead that, um, so which is really good. So, um, so the standard, which is the international standard, um, Oh, I've forgotten it. God, I've just lost my thought now. I say two two four five eight. Oh, did you take only, outs afterwards as well? No, there's only there's only ninety thousand standards to remember, and I'm a bit disappointed you've forgotten the first one. But there we go. I couldn't remember whether because we call it WD, you see, and I and I was like ISO WD. I went, oh my god, and then I just had a mind blank. So right, let me start that again. So. Yeah, so the ISO 22458 um, international standard is in draft version now and is out for public review. So um, people out in the public domain and businesses can comment and we will collate those comments and we will make any amendments that we need to do. And then hopefully that will be ready for publication um, early next year. And what would you say, Julie, finally, anyone who is thinking maybe about, about taking part in, in standards making, what would, what would you say to them? I would say from the experience that we've been through and experiences I know other businesses have had, British Standard was, it really helped change and shape our business. Um, so in going through the journey that we have over the last six, seven years from gap analysis to making improvements, it's it's had a massive change uh, in, in our culture, in our behaviours, because we're obviously trying to to show that demonstrate that we're attuned to that standard. It's not just about ticking the boxes and saying yes, we're doing X, Y, and Z. In doing those things and changing what we have in our business, we've had people come back to saying it's changed behaviours. It's people more positive, people are more empowered. So it's it's had a really good effect on us. So I would definitely recommend it to any business who who is thinking about um, doing a standard. Did you know button batteries? With recent developments in product design and technology, batteries are now available in a wide range of consumer products, including those aimed at children. Developed in collaboration with the Child Accident Prevention Trust, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Accidents, and the European Safety Federation, the standard PAS 7055 is an important step towards addressing the safety issues posed by batteries. It defines the safety requirements for manufacturers and producers of button and coin batteries, including the consumer products that use them and the retailers who sell them. 
we continue our look at the issue of standards and consumer vulnerability, this time from the perspective of those on low incomes, with Martin Kopak, a director of the organisation Fair by Design. Martin was previously Deputy Chief Executive at the Lending Standards Board, and prior to that, he was Head of Partnerships at the Financial Conduct Authority. With a background in consumer advocacy, grant making and regulation, Martin has held a range of positions, all with a common objective, to place low income and vulnerable people at the heart of policymaking. I started by asking Martin to tell me about Fair by Design. So I'm director of Fair by Design and we exist to eliminate the poverty premium. So those are the extra costs that poorer people pay for essential services. So things like your energy, your um, insurance and credit. And um, examples of the poverty premium include things like prepayment meters for your energy. So you're paying in advance, but more costly for your energy upfront. Um, not being on the best energy tariff because you don't necessarily have the um, time and ability to search out the best tariff for you. Um, it could also include high cost credit and also insurance. So um, an example there being if you live in an area which is deemed to be higher risk, you pay a lot more money for your insurance. Now, Martin, on the podcast, we have a running a running feature, which is all about our guest standards journeys. So mm-hmm. I'll ask you as well, where did it, where did standards start for you and where are you now? Ah, so um, actually it started in school when um, I was studying for my A-level home economics. So that's way back. Um, I'm not even sure whether they teach A-level home economics anymore. Uh, I did a home economics, not at A-level, but I remember that term, <laughs> home, home economics, you've suddenly sent a shiver down my spine. <laughs> <laughs> But I actually then did a um, a degree in home ec, although it changed its name halfway through the course. Um, So I took it to a a whole new level. Um, So um, for me, standards are around a a certain level of quality, showing a certain level of quality certain level of quality. Um, So big links here between safety for consumers, but also knowing that a product or service will be fit for purpose. Um, especially if it's designed around um, inclusivity with users. Um, I guess I've been working in consumer advocacy for almost all of my professional life. So uh, standards have come in and out of my professional work for many years. Um, I'm a particular fan of your earlier standard around consumer vulnerability. And I used that a lot when I worked at the financial regulator, when I was um, helping the regulator and firms get their heads around what does consumer vulnerability mean and how can we address the needs of vulnerable consumers. Um, and I suppose I've been involved every now and again with BSI itself in terms of helping to represent consumer interests in standards. Now, earlier in the podcast, we heard from Julie Hunter. She was talking about the forthcoming ISO 22458. Uh, which talks about inclusive service and inclusive design. But I wonder, what does that, what do those issues mean for, to you and why is it important for consumers? We're all very excited to see this come out, I have to say. Um, really looking forward to it. What does it mean to me? So I guess really it's about starting with the consumer, starting with the user. I think we often forget um, when we're designing products, services, regulations, policies, that the people who are the experts are the people affected who are going to use um, products and services. And we, I think we fail to put the lift experience of the users and the consumers at the centre of what we do. Um, 
so many times in product development, we develop things for, uh, for people like us and for an average consumer, but there's just no such thing as an average consumer. Um, and when I say an average consumer, I have to mean um, super consumers, someone who's, ne- who's never ill, always has a steady, reliable income, has loads of time and constant access to the internet to search out the best deals, and also always able to understand reams and reams of terms and conditions. And we all know that's just not a reality. So I guess if you were to say to me, what does inclusive design mean in a succinct way, start with the consumer and design out three main things. Those three things being exclusion, inequality, and fairness. So putting yourself then uh, at the heart of an organisation, then taking those those three ideas you talked about there, what are you know maybe the three things, three main things that organisations can do to make sure that their service is more inclusive? I'm going to go back um, over that the thing I've just been talking about, which the first thing is just always start with the consumer, and, and you know I'm going to talk about I'm talking about that a lot because it just doesn't happen. Um, in policy making, regulatory making, and in product design, I believe. Um, product and service developers or designers, whatever you want to call them, are not the experts the users are. We have to make a real important, um, uh, a real um, attempt to make sure we reach to people who just aren't like us. So, I mean, this is a challenge to BSI too here. Um, I would say don't rely too heavily on consumer representatives like me. We're just one piece of the jigsaw. Your decision makers or decision makers in any organization really need to spend time with people not like themselves. So um, I don't know, but, but an example here could be how much time has BSI spent working with people in poverty, for example, in the design of their new inclusive design standard. Maybe a lot, maybe not, but these are the challenges we all have to face constantly. I guess the second thing I'd say here is around, um, I've heard companies and regulators challenging themselves to recruit more diversely. And I think that's so important because the more diverse a workforce means the more likelihood of inclusivity um, because more diverse thoughts, diverse opinions and experience drive um, diverse policy making, product development, etc. And finally, um, nothing will happen without senior management buy-in. Giving staff permission to do things differently. And I do recognise this may mean that it takes more time over the product development process and more resource. But the big win is a larger consumer base for your product, um, a more useful policy that really meets lots of people's needs rather than the needs of those designing them. Did you know website accessibility? For most of us, the internet has become part of our everyday lives. Increasingly, some information is available only online and only website customers can benefit, for example, from lower product prices. But not everyone can take full advantage of all that the internet has to offer. For the millions of people with disabilities, many websites can be hard to read, understand or navigate. The standard BS8878 is designed to help organisations improve their websites, making them easier to use for everyone, including a requirement to seek feedback from website users and test sites 
to ensure that they stay accessible as technology develops. In this final section, I speak to Caroline Lewis, Director at Access Design Solutions and an expert in the design of inclusive and accessible environments. She is also a CPIN consumer representative in this area. To kick off our conversation, I asked her about her own standards journey and that CPIN role. I joined CPIN in, uh, back in 2016. My co-director that I work with, a lady called Carol Thomas, was involved um, with CPIN and also the European equivalent, which is um, ANEC. Um, so she encouraged my, my application, really. The reason being that for the past uh, probably 20 years, my work, my, uh, my, my role is working with consumers um, primarily in the built pedestrian and transport environments areas. Um, so my work really involves two, there are two sides to this, um, working with the end users who would be impacted by, you know, the, the projects that I'm getting involved in, but then also working with the professionals. Um, and w- when we work with the professionals, we tend to use the, the standards and guidance to advise them what they need to achieve. So the CPIN membership really was helping, was drawing those two aspects together, really. So both the end user and the professionals implementing the standards. So it was a really, it was a really good fit there. Um, and then since that time, so since joining CPIN, I've really just learned to, um, consider and represent the, the wider views of consumers and working with other people on committees, you know, business reps and industry reps and manufacturers. So it's been, yes, it's been really interesting. Take us inside that role a bit, Caroline. What does, what does it involve in being a, a CPIN rep? You're part of a network, you, so you're you're never alone when you're um, considering your work in in the standards arena. So there's, um, you know, multidisciplinary professionals involved, aiming to really ensure that the consumer voice is is heard in standards. Um, CPIN provide a lot of training for us, you know, right from induction stages, and then we have biannual forums and we all have the opportunity to get together and find out what each other are doing so um you know you never feel like you're you're alone you're part of a team of people who really have the same aims and passion um as you do um and then my particular um representation at the moment for seeping is specifically around the design of accessible and inclusive environments, which is kind of my area of um, specialty. So I would, in that role, I would um, attend committee meetings. um, And then when that committee is developing new standards or has task groups on certain particular issues, um, then you get involved in that and, and review, you know, comments that people have submitted through consultations, for example. So, um, you also are able to, as well as that specialism, you're also able to input into um, other standards that other CPIN reps are working on. So I've 
I've inputted into, you know, fire risk or um, another lady was looking at spectator facilities and needed some input. So um, really, we all work, we all work together. The role of us as a, as a CPIN rep is really to um, encourage the other committee members that we're sitting with to achieve, you know, those inclusive services mm. that can be used by as many people as possible, really. So improving accessibility is one way that organisations can help consumers in vulnerable circumstances. I wonder what are some of the risks facing consumers if buildings aren't accessible and what can organisations do to make things better? Yes, so we we, um, obviously quite clearly we all want to uh, be able to be independent and um, safe in what we do on, in our daily lives. And if you don't have those accessible buildings, then um, it means that certain people aren't able to either access your services or access employment or leisure facilities. And so what, what we always say is that um, by making your built environment accessible, then you're going to benefit all consumers. So um, we talk about inclusive accessible design um, rather than people very um, narrowly sometimes just thinking of access for disabled people so for example you know um accessible built design helps parents with um push chairs or um people with luggage you know the 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 um the advantages are far wider than just um disabled people so um and to you know really if if because if if people do that, then not only are they meeting, you know, the the legislation and and the the building regulations that we have, which which are minimum kind of standards, but there there are obviously business advantages to that for them as well. Um, the spending power of all those people that they can get within their their business, um, and also, you know. In, in terms of employment, the diversity of talent, really, that they're missing by in having that inaccessible building. So, um, so there are many, many, you know, advantages to, um, to making things more accessible so that people can access your premises. So can you give us some examples of the sort of influence that CPIN and CPIN reps have had on standards in the area of inclusive accessible design? Yes, of course. So, um, so I mentioned earlier that I sit on one particular committee, British Standards Committee, um, which looks at the design of um, accessible environments. Um, and um, that standard is particularly, we've been involved in the review of that standard, because as, as I'm sure your listeners will know, every standard goes through a five-yearly review process. So um, the last um, review of that particular standard, which was BS 8300, um, they decided to split the standard into two parts. Um, internal environments and external environments and the external environments was really the new um, part to that standard so um, we were involved very in, in, in a lot of detail in writing that new standard and in particular we we're able to input quite a lot in terms of 
um, wayfinding, which is how people um, orientate and, and find their way around um, external environments. And then as well as the um, British standards, um, we're also um, able, we've got the benefit of working at a European level and also an international level. So, um, my colleague Carol Thomas that I mentioned earlier was part of a project team of consultants writing the very first um, European standard in this area. Um, and what that really means is that um, when public sector bodies procure projects from now on within Europe, they will have to take this standard into account. So really, you know, there's quite a there's quite a big impact of being able to get involved in in these standards. So not only do we um, benefit working with other countries, but also that, of course, they learn from our experiences. Um, and that certainly helps with um, developing countries who aren't perhaps as advanced as we are with their, their standards development work. So, so Caroline, is that is the standard you're referring to there, is that BSEN 17210? That's right. Yes, it is. And that standard has um, just received um, approval. So we now have that as a new British standard uh, and European standard. Um, and there are two um, what we're calling technical specifications that will come out that are to be read in line with that European standard, um, which have also received approval, but we're just waiting for publication. So um, it, any day now, essentially. So. Matthew, I would just really um, encourage, you know, I've really enjoyed my time and valued um, being part of that network, the CPIN network, um, for the past five years. So, and we're always keen to get other people involved. So, if this sounds like something that you would um, like to do, then um, I can, I can certainly um, encouraged that, that you do that because it's, a, it's certainly a worthwhile thing. My thanks to Julie Hunter, Julie Walker, Martin Kopak and Caroline Lewis for their contributions to this episode. The next episode in this series will look at the issue of consumer safety and how CPIN and standards play a role in protecting consumers by minimising the risk of harm when using products and services. To make sure you don't miss out, subscribe to the BSI Education Podcast now, wherever you get your podcasts. You have been listening to an episode of the BSI Education Podcast. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. just heard a stripped media production.